Lasergate sends you inside the computer. It's 1200XL. Hi, everybody. Welcome to 1200XL. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. And today, Aaron, we're talking about freaking laser gates, man. Yes. Listen. Finally. What is it? What is it about the space shooter that keeps people coming back year after year, generation after generation? Listen, you know, the space shooters are a lot like pizza. Right? Even when they're bad, they're still pretty good. You know what I mean? You get in there, you shoot crap, you're flying around. There's a certain amount of freedom. And, you know, sometimes you sit down to play a game, and you don't want to, like, strategize or, or like, pound your head up against the wall. You know, you've had a long day on the job, you know. What you want to do is blow crap away. You know what I'm saying? Blow it up. See sparkles fall off of it. And this game uh, has that in spades, Boaster. Do you remember the very first space shooter that you played was a Galaxian? No. No, no, it would have been Space Invaders boat would be mm. easily be the first one because do you have do you have a memory of your first time playing Space Invaders? The well, I mean, I think the very first time I played it was at Hex, which okay. is a department store, a long, long dead department store that was a chain around these parts. I believe it's uh, a big lots now. Well, yeah, yeah, that the building's certainly still there. It's funny in the foyer there when you walk in, that's where the games were. Uh, they had a Space Invaders, and they also had... That's where I played that uh, Showdown or whatever, that, uh, you know, the Gunman game. Uh, the Wild uh, Gunman? No, you know, the one where you have the two guys, the the uh, gunfight or whatever you call gun it. Gunfight, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, um, uh, in fact, like I said, I'm not sure if I played Space Invaders or Gunfight first. It's close. Uh, but Space Invaders was, uh, you know, hey, listen, it, it was big here, too. And, uh, man, it's, I'm telling you, people don't get it now, you know? But, like, brother, you saw that thing in the arcade. You're like, holy moly, what am I looking at here? What's in there? Is that a TV? You know, what, what's all this crap? You didn't know. You didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then, you know, the sound. The sound in Space Invaders is it, it's minuscule. But it, what they did, it was just it's very creepy, you know, in a, in a weird way. And the, your shooting sounds real interesting. It was just an alluring game. But it did set the stage for, you know, everyone's uh, appetite to shoot aliens, you know, which, of course, movies and TV uh, set the stage for that for, like, the <laughs> the previous 50 years or so before that game came out. We were, we were scared of being invaded by aliens. No one ever comes from space to, like, give you a hand. They're always coming to get no. you. You know, That's thank right. God you had this mobile cannon boat to, you know, kill these suckers. So, you know, Space Invaders, obviously the first, the first alien shooting game, but in your own life, I mean, how would you trace the family tree of Aaron in terms of what came after Space Invaders? In terms of alien shooting? Yeah. <sighs> Boy, I mean, there were a whole cavalcade of games that were, I would say, um, of my earliest gaming memories that would involve like asteroids, because there's a UFO in that would be in there. That was an early one. Then you had stuff, I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, Plete, Pleiotides, or something, Pleitoids, something like that. I remember playing a game like that. Uh, then, of course, 
Uh, there were plenty of those, like, sort of black and white games in a colored background. One of the ones I remember being real impressed with back in the day was was um, freaking uh, Phoenix. I thought that game was awesome. I still do, by the way. It's a great game, you know, where you fight those birds. Uh, mm. Someone mentioned the chat, Gorf, exactly. Gorf talked. That was pretty impressive, you know. Uh, so I like that one. But, you know, when it comes to your sort of scrolling, if you if you think about today's game and kind of focus it back in the day, the closest you would probably get would be something like Scramble, which was mm. another early game that I thought was real. I mean, I like Super Cobra better. But I love Scramble. I like that sort of going over an alien a world, you know, bombing it. It's in, in some right. ways you're the enemy in that. You're the kind of the alien invading those worlds. So the tables are sort of turned in those. What about you, Bo? Do you recall what you got into me, back when you were a child? You know, it's funny. It, for me, it was Space Invaders, but it was not the Space Invaders that you know. Uh, for me, it was Space Invaders on the Atari 8-bit computer, which is a totally different game than the Space Invaders that came on the uh, in the arcades. Um, I remember reading uh, about the development of Space Invaders on the Atari 8-bit, and it was basically like they gave the guy carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do. And so in this version of Space Invaders, none of the Space Invaders looked like the Space Invaders that came out in the arcades. They emerged from a rocket ship that would yeah. that would it started out at the top of the screen and it would slowly get down and the, the way that you were able to choose your difficulty is that it, you you'd have this rocket ship on the side of the screen and it would slowly descend and so the advanced difficulty level meant that the rocket ship was closer to the earth and the the aliens would emerge from there uh the the idea that you would have bases where you could hide behind the bases would absorb damage none of that was present in the atari 8-bit version of the game it's interesting in that the fact that you know space invaders for the atari vcs was kind of the killer app it was the it thing was. that that moved yeah. the systems um and then when it came to the atari 8-bit machines they had a totally different take on it and a, a sort of inferior take Yes. But I think at, at that time, they were trying to, you know, they didn't need to have an arcade perfect Space Invaders to move these computers because it was a machine that was supposed to also do your taxes and whatever else it was. So yeah, I've, I've played that 8-bit version, and I do, I mean, don't get me wrong, I kind of like the Rocket idea pretty good. But, I mean, you called it. the the And the thing is, uh, the, the 2600 version of Space Invaders, they could have phoned, phoned it in. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. they knew it wasn't going to be as good as the arcade because the TV didn't have the resolution to put that together. And, you know, it was also uh, the orientation was different. But what it lacks in, like, overall Space Invaders, it makes up for just in the sheer volume of options uh, that options. they give you. Yeah. And the options, again, much like, say, an Asteroids, like those old Atari games. And, again, this is a pet peeve of mine when I watch new people try this stuff. And I'm like, eh, eh, it's okay. You know, like, if you give it a chance, there's a million great options in both those games that make it a lot of fun. I don't recall there being a ton of options in the in the no, eight bit. They, they didn't sell that at all, and so you don't get your invisible invaders. You don't get yeah. your invisible ship. None of that stuff is there because they realized that by the time that they, they were they were putting this out for the Atari eight bit, they didn't need that to move the the, the console. And that's the that's the secret ingredient of almost every single like game that came out and say that 78, 79 time period for the VCS is that and they even market it. They'd say like this is 87 video games, you know, on one cartridge. And it yeah. was true. It was yeah. true. 
the options are what make those games. Yeah, and if you really need to have the book or something to, to like play some of those old games, I mean, and the options and the, even the difficulty switches up, they make a lot. They make uh, the games a lot more fun because they didn't. They had to do everything they could to give you as much as they could with the minuscule amount they could on offer, and so they had to be very clever, and they were. They were very clever in those old days. Yeah. Now my first side scrolling. Uh, shooter for the for, that I ever played in my life. You know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't Life Force. It wasn't our type. It was this game. It was Laser Gates. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, Aaron, let's get into it. Let's yes, talk sir. about Laser Gates. Both this. It's amazing to me that this was the your first your first game for a bunch of reasons. Uh, but so so you're gonna have to explain some people who are surprised that this popped up on 1200 XL. Can you give us the scoop on this boat? Absolutely. Well, you know, as a child, uh, my dad brought home the 1200 XL one one uh, one evening, probably I would say in 1986 or 1987, well past the time where the 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 Atari eight bits were relevant on sort of the the stage. Uh, but he brought it home because this was going to be his work computer, and uh, he bought it from one of his uh, his colleagues at Union Carbide. And, uh, and this was going to be his machine. And so he set this up in the study. And, uh, and it wasn't long before he realized that the Atari 8-bits were, were lacking in certain ways uh, that were conducive to proper business usage. Yeah. And so it wasn't long until he, uh, he got himself a nice uh, XT clone, you know, the old 8088 special. And the, uh, the 1200XL was moved from the study into the living room. And then that's when it really became my computer. I had siblings, but they were young. They didn't know anything. And I told them to get out of there because it was my <laughs> computer. Um, we got most of our software from a connection that my dad knew at work. A guy named Skid Kennedy. His first name was Skid, Aaron. That's, that's pretty is that cool. his real name? I think that that's his Christian name. That was his given name, Skid Kennedy. Gutsy. Um, I like it. it. Every once in a while, you know, he'd get together with Skid, and all of a sudden he'd come home with a box full of floppy disks, okay? And that's where I'd say 90% of my Atari 8-bit games were found, were all these floppy disks. And they all came with these loaders. So you'd, you'd load up a game, and it would you wouldn't have to go into DOS or anything like that. They'd come with a custom loader, and it would be like, press zero to play Pac-Man. Press two to play Laser Gates. And so I'd be laser gates, that sounds cool. So I'd press two, laser gates would show up, and there it would be. So uh this is how the the, the first you know horizontally shooter game that I played what was laser gates. It was a it was a pirate copy uh from Skid Kennedy. So Skid, uh thank you. Uh Skid is not with us anymore. He Skid was already aged back in the 80s, so I, I don't yeah. think he's with us anymore. But uh but anyway. This is Laser Gates, Aaron, and, and it, you know, I'm I'm gonna let the cat out of the bag right away. This game was never uh, commercially released on its own for the Atari. This game was uh, originally a, a 2600 game. It did get a uh, it did get an Atari 8 bit port, but it was only released on a four pack, uh, a four pack of games. That uh, was uh, that that was basically an, an iMagic four pack, so it was never released on its own. I think own. it was called I think it was like iMagic one two three or something. Was the name okay, of it. Okay, yeah, super rare. 
It was yeah. probably a three pack, right? Yeah, it's a three. Four. I think it's a three pack. And I was reading, it's rated as a rarity nine. And I couldn't find a single picture of anything involving the box or the floppy. Me neither. Me neither. So this is a, uh, this is basically what you have here is a port of a 2600 game. So a lot of this information, we're going to take it sort of on faith that the same people were involved in the Atari 8-bit version that were involved in the 2600 version, although that may not be correct. And if it's not correct, please leave us a comment on YouTube and let us know the real story, because I've looked all over for it, and I cannot find it. Yeah, this is a tough uh, one I research. Yeah, this game was programmed by a guy named Dan Oliver. Uh, Dan Oliver did five games, uh, all of them for the 2600 for a variety of companies from iMagic to VentureVision to Apollo to Atari. You know, VentureVision I haven't heard of. Uh, the game that he did on there is called Rescue Terror 1. Uh, it's res it's rated on Atari Age as a rarity 9. So I'm, I'm, I'm reckoning that most people do not know about that. But Space Cavern was by Apollo. Apollo is one of those companies, much like iMagic, they sprung up sort of in Atari's wake in the early 80s uh, and uh, came to their demise uh, and the, you know, with the video game crash in the in Atari 2600 crash in 1983 slash 1984. The publisher of this title was iMagic. iMagic, of course, uh, notable as being only the second third-party developer for the Atari 2600. The first one, as everyone knows, is Activision. Uh, but some of the other Atari alumni uh, got together and said, hey, if Activision can do it, so can we. And they broke off. They made their own company. Uh, and they listen. listen, they put out some of the best titles, not only for the VCS, but for all of that sort of, I guess you'd call it second generation consoles, yeah. uh, the, the Atari yeah. and computers, yeah, the Atari, the ColecoVision, the Intellivision, all of that stuff they were they were part of. Uh, they did uh, Atlantis, which Aaron I know is one of your favorites. Yep. Um, Cosmic Arc, another Demon one. Attack, another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys were just all over the place with the hits. Aaron, yeah. uh, what do you think of when you think of iMagic? You know, it comes to my... Well, you mentioned all the games. I love those games, and there's more, all right? Uh, but one thing that I think of is they're really cool, like, uh, silver cartridge. Uh, you know, the, the cartridges were wrapped in silver, like, stickers, and the boxes usually had like actual like like photographic art of different stuff on it and the boxes were all silver too and they usually had like orange or a bright color for the for the tag it was always super eye-catching uh like paraphernalia there their boxes and labels so that's they were they were very good at at uh getting the uh, a good look i think they were way better than even activision i mean if you look at activision stuff it's it's definitely looks like Activision. You can, it's all like one big group, but it's not nearly as eye catching as the yeah, magic stuff. Well, what it is is they they saw that that Activision had a gimmick. You know, Activision's gimmick was you know line art, very sort of cartoony, uh, flat perspective um, realizations of of, of of screenshots. Basically, you know, you, you'll always be able to see an Activision game. It's got that you've got a main character that's got a rainbow following behind him, kind of tracing his 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 movement. And um, then I magic really, I think they took sort of what you might see on an old computer magazine, something like an old issue of Analog 
or bite or something like that, where they take something that was almost photorealistic, but still, you know, an illustration, they kind of had that, that kind of airbrush look to it, but it was a totally different look from both what Atari was doing, you know, the, uh, and I can't think the guy's name escapes me, but he's, he's sort of the, uh, the, 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 the crowning hero of, uh, of, of art on the, on the Atari system. But, uh, he, uh, but they take, you know, it was different than him, but it was also different than what, uh, than what, um, Activision was doing. So totally, you know, to be honest with you, Aaron, it kind of reminds me of what you might see more on an Odyssey two title. Uh, do you see any, you know, any similarities between the Odyssey two box art and the iMagic art? Uh, the Odyssey two box art was well. I, so here's the thing: and the Odyssey two box are also great, but it, it's it's pretty much illustrated. Like a lot of these, I, me and Brant on ARG, I think it was covered. I think it was Cosmic Arc, okay. Mm-hmm. And the amount of money they spent on the box photo was ridiculous because that had a model on it and it was a posed model and something. They used a lot of actual real life photos that they would and they would make models of some of ships and stuff, you know, and take the photos. I remember I read how much it cost them to take the photo. It was like a ludicrous amount, like 10 G's or something, you know, some stupid amount. You know, and so most of their boxes had like, like they had a, a game out for the television that had a vampire in it. So you got a vampire on the box, you know, and they've got uh, uh, games that have rockets like Atlantis. They've got like a model city on the front like that they put together. So like they, they and I like that. It set them apart. And when you add the, you know, I was a young boy. And so when you've got that cool reflective silver foil type cover and then you've got the cool photo. You're in. That was what young yeah. Aaron was down. They were the psychosis of their day. Basically, they knew they tapped into what people my age wanted to see, and it was cool crap like that. Absolutely. And Cliff Spawn, by the way, he's the guy that really kind of when you think about that distinctive Atari Twenty Six Hundred box art, Cliff Spawn yeah. is the guy that really, really pioneered that. that and you're stuff right. Is great. That's another. That I mean, that's a whole different type of art. But I mean, we both love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's I mean, let's who's kidding who. When you're selling Atari 2600 games or even Atari 8-bit games, you've got to do something besides post an image of the screenshot. Yeah. Because what you want to have is you want the player to be sort of inspired by what they see on the box, and they can mentally transfer that onto the very low pixel count of yeah. the game. And I do and, think and that's what Odyssey 2 did great. They were, yeah. I mean, when it comes, they, like, when you played like Quest for the Rings, they had all the dragons and monsters and stuff, and they looked great, and the art was solid, and the internal books and stuff were all super well illustrated. That was your buying, that was your, uh, your novella of the day. Like the instructions, right. the, the, the box, the box art, the fonts, that's what helped you set the scene for something that was not going to be that good looking. Exactly, exactly. And so um, this is, you know, I think it's great. I think that, of the, you know, the major publishers on the VCS and also on, on the Atari 8-bit, you've got, you know, the, the top three are definitely Atari. Their in-house staff was out of sight. Activision with that line-drawn look. And then iMagic is definitely a solid, you know, in that top three. You're yeah. right. You can't undersell the shininess of that metallic finish. Yeah. Plus... The photorealistic art, you know, it was a, it was a it was a winning combination. Plus, it made their titles stand out. Yeah. I remember thrifting, you know, back in the days when people actually did that, and thumbing through carts, and you could always you always pick up the magic yeah. carts because they're the only ones they were that have that aluminum foil. Yeah, that aluminum foil. Oh, that they also had a different shape. 
on like on like mm-hmm. the twenty six hundred, they have like a, a little lip that you can like yeah. help you know. So they were they that's what made them stand out. They knew. Listen, the guys were clever. And if it, it's funny, as I recall, our magic went public like right when the video game crash happened, as I recall. And so like they never got a chance to be a big player after the crash like Activision did. And it's a shame because you had some real wise people putting out some good stuff back in then. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about Lasergate. So this game is a at its root, it is a horizontal cavern shooter. Uh, I would say, you know, you always go back to scramble. Everything goes back to scramble. Uh, this is a, a game in that the, the scramble uh, genre where you are flying and the screen is scrolling horizontally. You're flying a little spaceship and you are negotiating obstacles while blowing uh, enemy combatants out of the sky. Uh, this game does come with a little bit of a backstory. Uh, Aaron, did you, were you aware that your ship in this game was called the Dante Dart? No, that's a cool name. I the love Dante that. Dart. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, in this game, uh, what you have is you—it's it, almost like maybe inner space meets Tron. Uh, you are piloting your ship deep into something only known as the cryptic computer. The cryptic computer, and your job is to destroy four fail-safe detonators. Okay, if you uh, if you uh, neglect to destroy all four of these fail-safe detonators, the uh, computer will malfunction. And it will obliterate the universe. It will be the end of time. <laughs> so, oh, wow. The stakes, the stakes are always high in no these kid. games. <laughs> and um, so anyway, you are moving throughout this area. And this computer, it doesn't look like your normal uh, garden variety computer on the inside. You know, when you think about, if I think about flying inside a computer, what I would think about is maybe, you know, circuit boards and traces and things like that. But in this game, it almost looks like you're flying inside a little city. Uh, you have what appears to be some vegetation. Uh, you've got some shrubbery. Uh, you've got things that look like uh, housing units, some residential areas. You've got towers. Uh, you've got power stations. Uh, it's almost like a little city within the computer. Uh, Aaron, did you ever, you know, when you were playing computer games as a lad, did you ever think about, you know, how games were represented in the circuitry itself? Did you think about them as little cities like this? Well, you know, after I saw Tron, I did. But I don't think mm-hmm. I did before that. You know, and I will say, uh, the, the representation here. I'm looking at as we're play, as we're talking. I'm looking at the video here, and you really this game to do it justice. You really need to play it to, because the visuals in this. I don't think I've ever seen a game that had the same sort of shimmering. Um, I don't know what like you know talk about not having traces. That's sort of what they remind me of. These there's everything in this game is interconnected with this like circuitry, uh, uh, or it looks like or like like electrical wiring, whatever you want to call it. And it's, you know, uh, Atari had this excellent graphical gimmick where you could get this weird shimmer. You see it in a lot of games, but yeah, not, yeah. I've never seen it quite used like this. And what you, what it gets is, I mean, you really get a feeling like you're in like either some, an electrified, super electrified alien world or inside a computer. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that reminds me sort of like playing a vector. It's like, you can't really tell on an HDMI screen when you sit down like this. You really need to sit down and play this like in the in the natural setting to get the full effect because it's quite an effect. And the, this is a graphical 
tour de force, in my opinion, uh, the, the, the way this game looks. I mean, I, and, and that shimmer is a big, huge part of it, but it's not the only part. Uh, but yeah. and I'll let you get to. I know you're going to get to it, but yeah, I, I think the shimmering and stuff, and the the way that they've tried to render an internal uh, inside the computer is a top top flight. Yeah, and so you know, if you if we go if we dip back into the lore just briefly here, uh, you've got something called the Universal Squeeze. I felt that before. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the Universal Squeeze uh, with these these uh, these flashing um, columns of light that come down and meet in the middle. Yeah. You've got flexing force fields, homing missiles, rock munchers, and bite bats. All of these things are in your way. Um, the thing that makes laser gates, well, I mean, there's a lot of things that sort of make this game stand out. And one of the things is that uh, this game has a HUD uh, that gives you real-time feedback on both your energy level and your shields. Now, in today's day and age, this is not a big deal. Every game does this. But for 1984, there weren't a whole lot of games that actually, first of all, gave you an energy beater, but also you're you're dealing with two different rapidly depleting uh, forces here. You've got your energy, which is your fuel, essentially, and then you also have your shields. Uh, and so you're keeping track of two different things at the same time. So this is sort of, you know, as I said, the, the game is you're, uh, you're essentially moving through four different zones within the computer trying to destroy these fail-safe mechanisms so the computer can be destroyed and the universe is saved. Um, now, Aaron, when you first played LaserGates, what, what did you think about it? Good question. Because I originally played this back in the day, and I, but I, to be honest with you, I totally had forgotten about it until you had this fired up at your house one time when I came for a visit. And I'm like, oh, I got to get some of this. And of course, the second I looked at it, I'm like, oh, I, this rings a bell. You know, uh, it, w when we were doing the show, when you were like, listen, let's do laser gates. And I started just, I had a brief look into the backstory and stuff. And the fact that this wasn't formally released is baffling to me. Like, I would, because yeah. I'm like you, I, we got this, my neighbor had an Atari, we got this through nefarious means, you know, and I just assumed this was a real popular big title. So I'm, and so today, and or this week, when I'm sitting here researching, I'm stunned that this is a very unknown title because we know about it uh, <laughs> and we love it. Uh, it's the, the, I like, you know, normally these heads up displays, and I will say this game's guilty of it too. Probably a third of the screen is taken, probably almost half the screen is taken up with gauges and like a thing that tells you what's, what planet you're on by the color. So you're really only playing with about half of a screen, you know, but I will say, and normally we kill that, don't we both? We hate that. We do. But we hate it. There's a reason that you don't kill it, okay? And it's not just because I have some kind of unbridled love for this. It's because this game is a, uh, this game is a, is a basically a vertical shooter stretched horizontally. They've, they've taken that, they've taken the limited space and they've miniaturized the play field and don't take that the wrong way, but they've, it's sized perfectly. So you could literally, if, if you turn this thing straight up, it would it'd be like playing a vert game, but you're playing it, it, the way that they did it, it works well. It, this game wouldn't have, if you had, if it had been full screen, 
you wouldn't work as well because you sort of need the kind of the kind of constricted area play area to make the game work with the shield yeah. aspect and the stuff. The gauges are fine. It tells you how long you've uh, you've got left. It's got your score. It's got all the stuff you need. I mean, again, at the the bottom parts of the of the HUD you don't really need. It shows what planet you're on. For anything, you can tell the color of the planet by the color of the planet that you're in. You don't really need something to tell you. But uh, I think they just stuck that down there to fill empty space, frankly. But the rest of it, I think the HUD works well, and uh, I like the graphical setup. From, so this is one of the rare occasions where I'm not going to dock too many points with the screen being half used. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. You know, the, this game, this game is a classic for me. It's rare, really. I mean, you're always fighting nostalgia whenever you you take a look at a game like this after the fact. You know, I I grew up playing this game. You know, probably dozens of hours were spent when I was a kid playing Laser Gates. And looking back on it now, there's a lot of things that I notice now that I had no idea about then that made me appreciate it. So it's really a happy accident. Uh, this game, we could have easily came up here and killed. You know, it's a game that I, I liked when I was a kid because I didn't know any better. But this game truly deserves a lot of the plot. It's like I said, this is probably one of the saddest stories of a game that was never released that deserved a release. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in this game, you are scrolling from left to right, and it's a race against time in three different uh, in three different factors. Okay, you've got three minutes to make it through each one of these levels. You have a clock that is ticking down the time. Okay, you have some control over how fast these levels scroll. Even though this is an auto scroller, you can get right up next to the the right of the screen, and you can actually push this game faster than it would normally auto scroll so that's that's important to remember okay how does this game slow you down okay this game slows you down by introducing a series of con well i don't know if they're concrete but they we'll, we'll call them concrete because that will put the right picture in your brain concrete columns that you have to blast through okay and in this game this is one of these games it's got the brilliant mechanic that it will let you have a certain number of shots on screen at once but whenever you're firing into these concrete pillars you, you know your shots are disappearing so it's almost like you have this rapid fire mechanism and the way that you blast into these concrete pillars is very very satisfying uh, you can really tear into these things and you can see the damage that you're causing with your laser which is cool and the idea is is this is another push your luck type factor because the screen is always scrolling you're trying to clear a space that's just wide enough for your ship to get through if you want to make it wider you can uh, but you're risking being pushed by the auto scroll but if you make it too narrow and you aim poorly your ship won't be able to make it through and you will take damage because that's the second thing that your ship has is you have these shields and these shields are finite you have a gauge that's that's ticking down that every time that you get hit your shields go down in addition to the time and the energy and the, and, and the shields, you also have energy. And energy is also a ticking time bomb that will eliminate your life if you're unable to, to, uh, to reach the end of the stage in time. So this is, this is a perfect kind of push-your-luck game because you are trying to get through to the end of the stage without depleting your energy or your shields, but you don't want to go too fast because these concrete pillars get in your way and they will deplete your shields to the point where you will die. Now, you might be asking yourself, 
well, why didn't they just do one or the other? Why? It seems like time and energy are the same thing. Well, they are sort of, but the thing is energy will deplete much, much faster than your time. Say you've got, uh, you know, three minutes of time to get through a stage in this game. Your energy, if you let your energy run down, it will probably only give you about a minute and a half of time. Okay, and so to replenish your energy in each one of these levels, there is one spot that's like a landing pad that has a big E on it. And this is something that I never knew when I was a kid. I just I didn't have the sort of mental capacity to understand what was going on. If you land on this landing pad, it will replenish your energy and allow you to complete the stage. Because many times I would be playing this game and I'd blow up and I'd have no idea why. Because I'd have no idea that there was a way that you could enter you could you could extend your energy. Didn't I show you, you that? Maybe like it I, was you. I'm pretty Maybe sure I'm the you. one that showed you that back in when we first started playing this back in the day. You're probably <laughs> right. I was going to say, because like nobody ever told me about it. So it was probably you, Aaron, that, yeah. sh that showed me how to do this. And so this is the only way that you can actually get to the end of each stage and blow up the main computer. Now, it's kind of funny. On the original version of the uh, the the um, of uh, of uh, Laser Gates, you have uh, a computer chip. It says 6507 on it, I believe. Uh, that is the processor that was inside uh, the LaserGate's, uh, the, the the VCS version. However, on the unreleased, Atari, well, I'm sorry, the, the very rarely released 2600 version, uh, you see 6502 there, which is the <laughs> processor found in the Atari 8-bit game. So they did carry that over. Uh, this is, uh, you know, again, this is something that I just, I can't believe a game this polished, this good looking, this well thought through was negated to just this, this, this three in one cartridge for the Atari 8, but it boggles my mind. Aaron, what you just give me, give me your total rundown on this game. What do you think? Well, you know, I agree with everything you said. It is baffling to me. In fact, before this episode, I didn't know there was a VCS version of this. I'd never played the VCS version of this. I'd only played the eight bit. Uh, I agree. Uh, the, what I'll, there's some things this game does right that few games do. Okay, I'm going to go through a couple. The whole shooting the shield thing, it works great in this. And what they've, because they've got a shootable shield, then they've got the laser shield. Okay, the laser gate, as if you will. And sometimes, and they come down differently. Sometimes they move. Sometimes one can be embedded in the other one. You know, as you go through. So they really, they and sometimes they come down like a smasher. The funny thing about this game is you almost always die from running out of energy as mm -hmm. opposed to shields. So sometimes you're better off just barreling through stuff. You get a goodly amount of shields uh, that you, that you, that uh, will hold up pretty well. But it's usually the energy that's usually what gets me. Uh, I love the idea of landing and getting some of that energy. I think that's great. This game sort of reminds me of Vanguard a little bit. The, uh, the, the horizontal levels of Vanguard uh, in that aspect. You can tell the same guys that worked on Atlantis worked on this. Because you can tell by the way the landscape's drawn. There's a lot of stuff that if you, look, if you watch, if you see Atlantis, uh, you can tell a lot of similarities. So, of course, I'm a big Atlantis fan, so I like that. One thing this game does, there's, it's funny, this game doesn't have tons and tons of, like, alien characters that that come up to you. But what they'll do is, if you don't kill them, they'll linger, they'll come in from behind. 
And yeah, so these guys, thing, these guys, these guys don't just sort of you know go from the right of the screen and then pass you by on the left like most shooters do. Like you said, they will linger and they will either linger on the screen or they will go off screen slightly, and then when you least expect it, they'll come back on from the other direction. And that's and one of the things, and I mean, listen, we both neither one of us are real fond of like weird shapes that linger around, but I will say the weird shapes that come to this game, they do open up an interesting gameplay element, which is. You can turn around and shoot the other way. The scroll keeps going, but you're it's sort of you can turn around. And this is one of the few games I've played with that sort of defendery sort of element that actually it actually controls great. Like yeah. I can actually turn around and fire and like not suck. Like I'm I'm tearing it up, you know, because you can fly the the uh, the long. It's almost this reminds me of playing one of those games in the arcade where they have like a double screen. That's what it reminds mm -hmm. me of because you get a ton of space horizontally tons of it like double the space you'd get in most games and so this allows you to do stuff like go up go forward real far turn that sucker around pick those suckers off from behind you know and, uh, and you can do it you can even shoot walls from behind if you want to uh, if you take the notion to i guess for points uh but i, I love that i love the elements of the game that w and when you combine them all with the shields and the overall aesthetic it's a real winner. The sound effects are just exactly what you would expect. Sort of like um, uh, if you've ever played Parsec on the uh, TI, the, the, this this game sort of rem a little reminds me of that. It's sort of a similar sort of setup as Parsec. It doesn't have the cool voices, but it's the laser sound is cool. Uh, the uh, um, the way your jet looks or your what you call that thing, the dart. Yeah, it's the a, Dante dart. Like it looks good. It doesn't look like a garbage. It's not just a triangle or something. It's a solid looking ship. I mean, I'll be, to be honest with you, I don't have anything negative to say about this. I think this is a top-tier uh, Atari uh, 800 game or Atari 8-bit game. And, I mean, uh, I don't know how many people know about it because, like I said, I'm, I'm much like yourself. I sort of tried to do a little research on it, and I was flabbergasted at the uh, low... Um, the low amount of of stuff I could find on it. It's just there's just nothing out there on it. Well, you uh, know, even the twenty six hundred version that uh, that that came out, it's still pretty uncommon to find anybody that's writing anything about it. Part of it is the fact that it was released in nineteen eighty three, so we're right on the cusp of the crash. And so, uh, you know, this was you played one of this the, on the twenty six hundred boat. No, never. Did you know, you know it existed? It, not until I started researching this game because I've never seen a card of this. And I've seen so many Phoenix carts. I've seen so many Atlantis carts. I've seen tons of iMagic carts for the 2600. Never once have I seen a laser gate. And if you look at these, we're like, we're looking at them side by side. Like, if I didn't tell you that they were the same game uh, or the same name anyway, like, there's, there's a slight resemblance. But I mean, the. And God bless the 2600, but I mean, this is like, you're in a whole different stratosphere on the 8-bits. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, the the 2600 game, it looks quite remedial compared to, and the thing is, I think the 2600 probably could, I mean, really, I will say, the 2600 have a whole lot of vertical scrolling, like, games like this, that there's not a ton of them, so it does deliver on the gates and stuff, uh, but uh, uh, it's it's uh, far less elegant than the 8, trust me, play the 8-bit version, I guess is what we're saying. Here, here my, my personal feelings on this is that this game was, of course, originally planned to be a full retail release for the 8-bits. Once the crash happened, iMagic really ran into some financial straits. They tried yeah. to kind of gather whatever they had and kind of combine it into one as one last gasp to uh, to to make some money. 
They're like, if we combine three of these games into one cart, maybe people will buy it. Uh, the wrong move, iMagic, of course, uh, out of business. I, they did not. They did not uh, survive the crash. I believe. Uh, oh, did your Did your research determine like did the did the twenty six hundred version come out earlier? Is that yes. why it oh, made yeah. it out? Yeah, absolutely. The Atari six twenty six hundred version was the lead development platform on this. I see. And uh, and because you're right, timing is everything. And this the copyright on this does say eighty four, so this would have been right when it, everything tanked. Yeah, looks like uh, they they their company was liquidated in nineteen eighty six, uh, and uh, they they uh, you know after eighty three things were were never the same. Yeah, well I, yeah. this right here, boat. I'm going to give you credit. This is the one of the highest level hidden gems you're ever going to find on any computer, in my opinion. Like if you're a shoot, fan of shooters, if you're a fan of uh, uh, horizontal uh, games where you have to negotiate your way through barriers or whatnot, sort of like a vanguard. Like I can't imagine you not being into this. And if you're just into yeah. good looking games, this is. I mean, it's yeah. And, and if you're listening, if you're listening to this on via podcast, do yourself a favor. You don't have to watch our video. Just do just do a quick search on YouTube for um, LaserGate's Atari 8-bit and look at the way that these cities are rendered with the the circuitry that that that, uh, that connects them all. Like you said, that 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 flashing circuitry. Yeah, it's a it's a look that has has never really been duplicated. In turn, you yeah. know, I've played I've played hundreds of Atari 8-bit games. I've never seen something that looks exactly like this with as much going on on the screen. It's really a fantastic game, and it's you know if this was iMagic Swan Song, what a Swan Song! I agree, and it, uh, iMagic a great company. If you're going to go out, like this is a good one to go out on, especially just from the the artistic standpoint of it. I mean, it's a real, it's a real beautiful, uh, interesting looking game. Yeah. All right, Aaron. What do we have coming up next week so, or next so, week next time <laughs> on 1200 XL? Well, I I took the Liberty boat. Uh, uh, in fact, that sounds like a boat I would take the Liberty boat. Oh, hey! <laughs> before you announce it, move us on back up, Aaron, to the old game scene because yeah. we did get one review. We did, and I would be remiss. I would be right. much remiss to uh, to not uh, be able to give a shout out to uh, our one and only uh, Pajaco sixty five oh two. Where he says, uh, laser gates, part scramble, part defender, and not as good as either. In principle, the game ticks a lot of boxes for early 80s space shoot-em-ups. But the game is flawed in the implementation of the energy system. As you fly through caverns, you use energy, and there seems no way to conserve it. And so you fly along desperately, waiting for an energy charger to appear so you can recharge enough to get to the final boss CPU thing when you can then shoot the heck out of it and go at it again. But here's the whammy. Miss the energy recharger or mess up your recharge, and you're on a one-way ticket to Death City. You know you aren't going to make it to the end, but the game makes you play through anyway. If you're going to do this sort of thing, then either make it a checkpoint or do what Scramble did and have something to shoot to get energy back. And because this is a fresh coat of paint on a VCS game, the variety is lacking, which is not a bad thing as this is a game for high score rather than completion. So for its time, not a bad arcade style game and has the look and feel, but gameplay wise, this one doesn't quite hold up today, but it's worth giving this one a shot. Six out of ten. Oh, Jaco, I... not a fan. I disagree. Although I understand, I can understand his point, but no, this is a. I think this is a, a ten out of ten. Personally, it's to me. Me too. Me too. I, I, I think this is a great one, and he's right. If you miss the energy, you're you could Listen, be boned. 
You Dems the brakes. Dems the brakes, as they say. <laughs> You're right. So getting back to next week's uh, next uh, show's game, I took the liberty of picking this one. And so I, I told Bodas, I got, you know, I'm going to look and see what was popular amongst our peers. You know, so I looked to see what was. And though this game proved uh, Atari Mania to be the highest rated game. And I thought to myself, my God, we've never played it. And so we're going to be playing this uh, special game on the next show. Let's fire it up here, Poacher. Bam. It's Flob. It's Flob. <laughs> this is this is a game from 2021 Flob. that I've never heard of. And Boat's never heard of it either. Nope. Uh, the uh, truth of the matter is... Uh, this is the highest rated game on um, Atari Mania, and I felt like we would be remiss without giving it a whirl, Boat. I cannot wait to play Flob, and I yes, never thought I'd do. say that. <laughs> so, guys, thank you as always. Of course, we release 1200XL, some might say sporadically. Oh, no, we don't have what you call a regular release schedule, but we do enjoy uh, w whenever we get together and talk about the Atari a bit, and hey, listen... If you are listening to this, you should tune in uh, in just a couple days or after the fact on YouTube. Uh, we call him the good doctor. Drone doctor has sent us a package. Three or four big boxes are over there on my table right now waiting to be unboxed. Atari 8-bit goodness. Tune in and check out what he sent us, the goodness that the Drone Doctor has sent us. Guys, thank you so much for watching 1200XL. We will see you next time. And until then, make sure you play your Atari today. Do it. <laughs>